You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School's Business and Environment Initiative. Before we get into today's episode, let me tell you about a new HBS online course called Business and Climate Change that we've just launched. In this five-week asynchronous online course, you'll learn the tools and tactics companies around the world are using to become more resilient to droughts, floods, wildfires, and storms, and how they're engaging in mitigation to reduce their emissions. This course enables you to leverage those insights to inform your own organization's strategy. Learn more and apply at the HBS online website or at hbs.me slash business and climate change. Now, on to Climate Rising because of the energy transition, because of the need for new minerals, it became very apparent to us that mining was a sector that the world needed us to focus on. This is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School, and I'm your host, Mike Toffel, a professor here at HBS. In today's episode, I'm talking with Ideon Technologies' Gary Agnew, CEO and co-founder, and Kim Lawrence, VP of Talent and Customer Experience. Ideon uses energy from supernovas called muons to help create 3D maps of critical minerals needed for the clean energy transition. I'll ask Gary and Kim to explain their technology and how it can accelerate the energy transition with respect to mining for minerals like cobalt and lithium. I'll also ask them how they're using artificial intelligence and machine learning to improve mining efficiency and reduce its environmental impact. And as usual, I'll ask them to share some advice for those interested in working at the intersection of business and climate change. Here's my interview with Gary Agnew and Kim Lawrence of Ideon Technologies. Gary and Kim, thank you so much for joining us here on Climate Rising. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having us. Let's start with a little bit about your background and your introduction. Can you each describe who you are and how you got there? Gary, maybe we could start with you. Yeah, sure. Gary Agnew, CEO and co-founder at Ideon Technologies. I've spent most of my career in one fashion or another uh, serving the global mining industry. Previously, I worked for the world's largest caterpillar equipment dealer, a company called Finning, straight from school and progressed through the company over a 20-odd year trajectory. Then uh, back in 2018, decided it was an opportunity to do something perhaps more purposeful with the next uh, phase of of my career. And so left the comfort of a corporate organization and uh, switched gears and jumped into a startup. Great. And Kim? Kim Lawrence. I'm the VP of Talent and Customer Experience at Ideon, and I've been there since 2020. I am an arts grad and a business grad attended what Canadians lovingly call the Harvard of the North, Queens in Ontario. And so my career in the beginning started in high tech, so mostly uh, satellite remote sensing technology, and then also into the graphic arts tech space. Then I took a 15-year deviation to work inside research universities. That involved a lot of looking at new tech, spinning things out, working at business schools from the inside. When I was at the end of that trajectory, decided to go startup. Wanted velocity, wanted quick decision and action. And so I got that in spades. And how did you get here to Idea and how did you find the company? You know, it's all about networking, right? So one of the original co-founders of Ideon was a former colleague of mine from my satellite remote sensing days. And so we stayed in touch over 25 years or so and reconnected. Neat. And so Gary, give us an elevator pitch for the company. What does it do? We use the energy from supernova explosions in space to image down to a kilometer than the Earth's surface. And we use that technology to help the global mining industry discover and characterize uh, minerals in the Earth's crust. Quite a timely commercialization of this technology, given the global shift to renewable energy and the requirement for a 500% increase 
in a range of critical minerals that will enable that energy transition. That sounds like kind of science fiction in some ways. Yeah, it does sound like science fiction, but I can assure you, you and your audience that it is very real. Uh, maybe I double click on the kind of high level positioning statement. Yeah, we're using subatomic particles called muons. And muons are very much like an electron, but much heavier. The neat thing about muons is they travel to Earth in straight lines of almost speed of light. There's one passing through yours and your audience's heads every second. And as those uh, muons penetrate the Earth, they are slowed down and ultimately decay based on the density of the matter they are traveling through. And that's really an important crux to our technology. And what we've developed the ability to do is measure muon intensity and directionality in the Earth. And from that, we're able to then produce 2D radiographic images, just like an X-ray, and 3D representations of density, very analogous to CAT scan in medical imaging. And so that's really at a reasonably high level how the technology works, how we use those particles, and how we create 2D and 3D imaging of the Earth. Let's talk about how you, as a co-founder, came up with the idea. Where did the idea come from for Ideon? Where did the technology come from? A little bit about the backstory of the company itself. I, I won't claim any credit for the original idea. The idea had germinated and developed quite a lot before I got involved with the business. The origin story of Ideon was actually a project geophysicist working in Canada and in the mining industry had read about muon tomography, which is our core technology, uh, being used in volcanology. A gentleman called Brian Powell, and instead of just passing it by, he took his curiosity and posed a question to Canada's National Particle Physics Laboratory, an organization called Triumph. And the question he posed was, could this technology be used for mineral exploration? And thankfully for myself and the rest of the team at Ideon, someone at Trium said, we're not sure, but we'd love to find out. And that really kicked off what was an initial desktop uh, research assignment that turned into a proof of concept, that turned into almost a decade of commercial field trials with the major mining companies. And really that took us to uh, around 2020, the time when Kim and I got involved as the kind of nascent uh, technology and an R&D unit. Uh, was looking to stretch its legs and uh, and become a commercial entity. And so we owe a huge debt of gratitude to the Canadian government, its funding of advanced and fundamental uh, science, and the role that Triumph played in, in helping this fledgling technology really be able to do the commercial trials to prove the efficacy of the technique over that time. But also we owe a debt of gratitude to Triumph for is recognizing that there was a much bigger commercial opportunity for this technology, and therefore the business was spun out of the lab on the back end of 2018, uh, really to give it the freedom um, to be able to hire the talent, you know, work with the mining industry, get investment, to be able to take a proven technology and turn it into an industrialized solution for the market. Quite a neat journey from government lab to commercial entity. So the reason I'm a co-founder in the business is uh, there were some structural issues that we had to navigate. One of the implications of that was we had to re-found and restructure the business. And so we did that in 2020, and hence I become a co-founder with the original co-founders at that time. Got it. And Kim, you had some experience already in this broader space before you came in. What was your first take when you heard about this new technology and how it was being deployed? I 
confession, you know, when I was a young girl, I had aspirations of being a nuclear physicist. I'd always been fascinated with space. And so earlier in my career, I really gravitated towards that and um, was part of the launch of the first satellite in the radar sat spectrum, which was the first time that humans had seen the Earth through clouds in many areas of the world. I'm a sucker for cool stuff from space. So it's pretty unbelievable, but uh, I've seen evidence of how it works. Uh, it's pretty spectacular. So let's talk about mining and the environmental impacts of mining. Because I think most folks, if they're hearing, oh, there's a new technology to make mining more efficient, they'll be like, well, this doesn't sound like a particularly attractive thing for the environment. Often mining has lots of problems, uh, including pushing toxins into the environment, into waterways, lots of mining involved in the fossil fuel industry, which converts carbon from under the soil into our atmosphere. But you're trying to turn this around and say, no, no, there's opportunities here to make mining more efficient in ways that will, I think, be a win-win, more cost-effective, but also more environmentally beneficial. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, sure. And maybe the first thing that I'm not sure the average person in the street recognizes is that mining is one of two fundamental industries. Everything that is produced on Earth comes as a result of, because products are either grown or the materials are mined in order to produce them. A 40,000-year-old industry, something that the human race has been engaged in through all of that time. And without question, I think as we look back over the last decades and the last centuries of mining, there's a lot that could have been better, could have been cleaned out, could have been a different impact on the environment. For me, what I'm energized by and, and really focused on is the shift that this industry is in the middle of making. The leaders of this industry recognize um, they have to play a different role in the future. That have to play a cleaner, more societally orientated role. And very much, you know, from a, what's traditionally been a, a dirty industry, if, if you would call it that, really there's the opportunity for mining to become a critical industry that is about enabling the transition to renewable energy. From a difficult past in many, many regards, Mike, this industry has got a hugely exciting future. It's a large global industry, multi trillion dollar industry. It's got a level of complexity that requires great talent in the sciences, in technologies, in geology, in order to effectively be able to understand how do we extract the minerals with a minimal impact on the earth and our environment, but extract those minerals in a way that is a sustainable approach to enable this planet and the human race to move forward. What's exciting is the improvements that are being made and our technology is a good example of how this industry is reaching for the leading edge science and technology that will enable them to transform their business into a much cleaner, greener, more progressive industry for the world. Let's decompose this and talk about costs and environment one at a time. So on the cost side, the odds of the current business as usual approach to searching for metals, and we're talking about things like lithium and cobalt and nickel, things that are needed for the energy transition for batteries, for example. What's the current technology prior to yours that's used to identify areas where folks try and mine? And what's the success rate of that? And then how does that compare to your technology? Yes, there's a couple of different technologies the industry uses today. There's a range of geophysical techniques and geochemistry techniques. But once you get to an area of interest, could be many square kilometers, drilling becomes the predominant way the industry searches the earth. And to give you an example, you know, this year, 150 million meters of drilling will happen in the search for and the characterization of minerals in the earth. 
And so drilling is a 150-year-old technology um, that the industry has relied heavily on to do its exploration. If you look at prospective sites that could have minerals in to those that turn into operating mines, that's a 99.9% failure rate. The only similar failure rate we could find is in the pharmaceutical sector, uh, where they similarly have a 99.9% failure rate. So very high failure rates. Uh, the tools the industry has had to do its work have really been built for surface discovery. But over the last decade, most of the near-surface deposits have already been discovered. And so it's forcing the industry to go deeper underground, but they really haven't had the tools or don't have the tools to be able to do that efficiently. And really, that's where our technology comes in. You know, with one drill hole, we can interrogate hundreds of millions of cubic meters of earth to be able to allow the customer to more precisely target the next step of their exploration and development program. In using your technology, if, if you drill a hole and put your sensors down there, and you can then assess so many cubic yards or meters of soil to look for these metals. How do you compare if it's one in a thousand using the traditional approaches? What's the commensurate number for your technology? Yeah, I don't have a good number for you because ultimately, Mike, it depends whether there was actually any minerals in the earth that we're searching. What we provide the customer with is 95% certainty that when we image a density anomaly, it's really there or when we confirm there are no density anomalies in that 3D space, that the customer can move on without making further investments in an area that has nothing to yield. And so what we're really providing the customer with is certainty. And with that certainty, they can optimize their subsequent investments, either very targeted to areas of interest or to cut and run as it will, to move on from a prospective area that doesn't yield anything. So that's really the business we're in, providing that certainty. Got it. And let's talk about now the environment side. So the traditional approach versus your approach, and what are the consequences of that from an environmental perspective? Yeah, well, if you can imagine the traditional approach, it's really a pincushion, a drilling activity, hit and miss drilling. That drilling activity emits um, GHGs. That has impacts to the water table that you know, may be penetrated as a result of that drilling. And so we absolutely save a direct GHG impact through drilling. But really our technology is what we make possible rather than the direct impact on drilling because with our technology, we enable minimally invasive mining techniques the customer is not able to benefit from today um, because they don't have the certainty of the subset. In fact, working with one of our clients in the uranium space, their uranium in Canada is formed in, in high-density, small pots that are very, very difficult to hit with drilling. And so with our technique, we're able to provide a 3D image in exactly the location, size, and delineation of those pots. And their client, Arano Canada, has developed a minimally invasive extraction technique that instead of an open pit mine, they are actually drilling down, extracting the mineral from the surface and returning it to the surface without removing all the earth that's typically involved in traditional mining. And really, if we take the medical imaging analogy a step further from the 2D X-ray, the 3D CAT scan, and really medical imaging was the enabler to keyhole surgery in the human body. And that completely transformed the patient experience. With our technology, hopefully with that analogy, you can see how we can completely help the customer transform 
the mining method they select to be able to dramatically change the GHG impact and, and broader environmental impact in that area. And of course, from a societal perspective, you know, nobody wants to mine in their backyard. These new techniques make mining potentially a, a much better neighbor with much less impact on the surface of the earth and to the communities that surround it. And just to add to that as well, I mean, one of the things our technology enables is more efficient use of existing mining locations. Decades ago, there wasn't the technology for companies to really understand if they extracted everything from a particular site before they chose to move on. And so many of those companies are now going back and taking a look at those assets to see what additional resources can be found. One of the challenges with that, of course, is safety and understanding what's going on beneath the surface before you send in a crew, equipment. Neon tomography can be used to detect subsurface voids, sinkholes, subsidence areas, areas that could be dangerous for reopening some of those resources. And so I guess I like to look at that as why create a new mine if you can get more from an old one? So it's an environmentally responsible approach to seeking critical minerals in the short term. Yeah, it's a bit like brownfield development in a way in cities. So the idea of brownfield development and this precision medicine approach, this keyhole surgery, as you described, the orthoscopic surgery, for example, are the two analogies that were coming to my mind. Let's talk a little bit about the actual targets of these efforts. You mentioned metals as your target. How did you decide on which mining targets to pursue? I imagine there's some limitations to the technology, but even then, you probably need to focus, especially as a startup. Yeah, absolutely. First order of business was selecting a high-level vertical market we're going to focus on. And quite quickly, because of the energy transition, because of the need for new minerals, it became very apparent to us that mining was a sector that the world needed us to focus on. And once you then look at mining, you're absolutely right. Yeah, there are limitations in any technology. What neuron tomography does is image density contrasts. And so once you recognize that you know, we can image density contrast. You then start to look, well, which minerals and their mineralizations have a density contrast with the surrounding earth. And so that quickly took us to base metals, battery metals, and uranium, the three kind of high-level buckets of minerals that have a significant density signature. And now the fortuitous uh, part is that battery metals were part of the natural capability that our technology has. And of course, with the market timing over the last few years and the green energy transition, um, that was where we were quite fortunate. Our technological capabilities lined up very nicely with the market opportunity and uh, what the world needs in terms of additional metals. Now, is there a, an opportunity for you or others to use this technology to improve the efficiency of identifying fossil fuel reserves as well? And how are you thinking about that? Certainly in fossil fuels, and if I point to oil exploration, that tends to happen quite deep in the earth in the two to three to four kilometer depth range. One of the limitations of our technology is um, that we can image successfully down to around a kilometer deep. And so immediately that kind of took us out of the oil exploration business, but quite a number of use cases in the oil extraction business for our technology. Now, having said all of that, you know, we're a very purpose-driven team and a purpose-driven company. Kim and I, part of the reason we left our comfortable corporate roles is because we wanted to have a more positive impact on the world. And so we have focused our company and our work on really unlocking ESG potential with our clients. There is no bigger place at this moment in time for us than the mining business to help that huge industry pivot to be a critical industry, a clean energy for the world. Almost 100% of our attention is on the mining business. 
And so we do not and are not taking on active projects in oil and gas. Kim, we're hearing a lot about purpose-driven organizations, mission-driven organizations in the news in our halls here at HBS, a bunch of books being written about this. And you're in an organization that, as Gary's mentioning, sort of double-clicking on that. I wonder if you can talk about how that affects the recruiting and retention and motivation of your workforce that you're bringing to bear. It is a dramatic differentiator for us to have such an intriguing technology and a meaningful global purpose to how we apply it. And I've spoken to hundreds and hundreds of candidates from, you know, on the science side of the house, on the corporate side of the house. Every single person has said they're looking for something meaningful to do with their careers. I haven't spoken to anyone who's like, yeah, I just want to make widgets. For us, we leverage that a great deal and we live it every day and it impacts every strategic decision we make at the company. There were a lot of shiny objects when we first started talking about this and there still are a lot lot of shiny objects, but they can't just be shiny. They have to be shiny and have a purpose. So that's where we landed. It's drawing people from all over the world. Pretty excited about that. We have an incredibly diverse team. I think with 33 people, we've got about 19 languages spoken in our compliment so far. And um, everybody's driven the same way. How many staff do you have so far? We're actually, as of today, closer to 37. We've doubled in the last six months. And it's quite an interdisciplinary team. It is. It is. So, uh, you know, on the technical side of the house, we've got subatomic physicists nestled next to mechanical engineers and electrical engineers. We've got assembly techs who are building detectors next to very talented inventory and warehouse people. We've got finance folks, marketing and, and human resources people. And of course, leadership across all of them. And we're just growing another layer of our leadership, particular expertise in hardware and software engineering, geosciences, and some of our more mechanical components of how we do deployments worldwide. Just through all of that, building relationships with our customer base around the world and that skill set, having somebody who's technically competent, who's also able to close a deal. That's been the the unicorn role that we've been trying to find for a long time. And we just landed one. So very excited. Congratulations. And for me, the ability to bring together those different technical disciplines and integrate them, because ultimately the customer doesn't care in terms of the specifics of each of those disciplines. We provide an integrated solution to the customer. And so to Kim's point, the way we create the culture and the collaboration internally, really the better we are at that, the more seamless our solution is to the customer on the outside. And so really we work quite hard at getting the best talent, but then working together with their colleagues across an array of technical and non-technical disciplines and to be able to deliver a a full stack solution, as we call it. And for the more introverted of the bunch, we have seven foot tall whiteboard wrapped on all of our walls in our production (laughs) area. So you don't have to necessarily speak to somebody to communicate. So we try to facilitate interdisciplinary communication creatively. Do you have to do any uh, cross-training, like disciplinary language training? 100%. Yeah. It's growing into what I like to call the IDEON Academy, but certainly we don't expect anybody who walks in our front door to know anything about the technology that we're using. And so, yeah, I mean, we're teaching people Neon Tomography 101 quite intentionally. Yeah, very interesting. Let's talk about the operations perspective on this whole question how the technology is deployed, like what's your sales cycle? And then what does it look like from uh, either you or your customers to deploy your technologies? How do you think about narrowing down the scope of all mining into the mining of these metals in this case? And now you have a target list of a bunch of companies. How do you then identify prospects? What's your pitch? And then what does it look like on the ground? I would say 
targeted is the watchword of the day. So we've done an analysis of the globe, essentially, to look at key mineral districts that align nicely with our technology capabilities. And we target our customers very specifically from then on in. We want to make sure that the first projects that we're doing are excellent projects that yield great case studies with amazing testimonials. We're not looking at edge cases. We're not looking at poorly capitalized companies that may not be able to complete a project. So it's about where are the great deposits, which companies are active in those spaces, at which part in their own development cycle. Are they open to innovation? Do they have the infrastructure inside their companies to facilitate innovation throughout the mining operation? And then how do we get in there and, and make the connections? And that's kind of the, the anchor to how we've built our, our whole sales cycle. It's not a short sales cycle with some of the largest mining companies in the world. It takes time. It takes a lot of education. So we're going in with a, with a solution that sounds, as we like to call it, a little bit woo-woo. <laughs> and so getting people to really understand the science and how it's different from other geophysics techniques that they've used in the past, that's a big part of our commitment to our customers. We also don't ask them to commit to any kind of a project until we've done a complete forward model using our advanced physics engine on their specific site with their specific challenges so that they can feel really confident that they're committing to something legitimate, meaningful, and that'll have the right outcomes for them. To be honest, we white glove them through the process at this point. So the whole experience is beginning to end. Oftentimes we're introducing people in those companies to one another. So we're bringing together different parts of major mining companies that wouldn't necessarily work together. That's been a pleasant surprise, I think, and a real learning opportunity for us too. There's a lot of really good-hearted people doing cool things against the odds in this industry. Interesting. So suppose you now have a customer ready to go. What's the next step? What does it look like on the ground? Yeah, so as Kim mentioned, we do that forward modeling. We give the customer a very tangible sense of what our technology will deliver before we ever land on their site. But we do land on their site. We'll ship our solution air freight. Uh, we'll send a deployment team who will uh, physically deploy the sensors down drill holes in the customer's site. They have prepared those drill holes so that they're ready to receive our sensors. And um, that can typically take anything from a couple of days to a week, depending on the size of the deployment that we're affecting. What's nice about the way we've developed the technology, it's a full IoT framework. And therefore, once we're deployed either through satellite or cell communications, we're getting data in near real time. And so we're able to look here at our nerve center in Richmond, BC. We can see every deployment, every detector, understand how they're performing, how data collection is happening. We provide the monthly imaging updates. Now with typical geophysical techniques, um, you run a survey, there's a lot of analysis happens, and then some months after the data collection is completed, the customer will get a result. Uh, the difference with our technique is we're able to provide the customers uh, monthly imaging updates. And so we can show them how progressively that deployment is, is working. And what we found a few times is that sometimes the imaging anomalies appear much sooner than are anticipated. And that affords the customer the ability to make a decision. Do we want to spotlight search in that particular area and really get a focus there? Or if we're, if we're seeing nothing after a number of months, do we want to redeploy the equipment into a, another prospective area? So yeah, we're bringing together hardware, uh, software, field deployment, communications, power, et cetera, and obviously a full suite of analysis to be able to turn that raw signal data into 2D and 3D models of the subsurface. An end-to-end -end solution that um, we try to make Ideon easy to do business with and easy for the customer to be able to draw on the services that we, we offer. 
And how many sensors are you deploying and at how far apart are they? Very much depends on the, what the customer is trying to achieve. And that's a key part of the process that Kim was describing, really understanding on their site, what have they found before? Because typically if you have found mineralization on a site of a particular size and shape, density contrast, the chances are there's going to be more mineralization of that profile on the same site. So we really dial our solution in to meet the requirements or the expectations the customer has on their specific site. What that means, Mike, is sometimes it can be you know, five or six detectors from one drill hole can be the extent of the survey. Other times, we have been uh, mapping two and a half kilometers or a couple of miles, um, one and a half miles of strike length. And therefore, it may be five drill holes with 15 detectors across all of those drill holes. So it very much depends on you know the area of interest and the specific mineralization the customer is looking to discover. As well as the speed uh, at which they'd like to move. And so um, in many cases, we have customers who want results. They want them quickly so they can make decisions and move on. Um, we do have the ability to half the imaging time by doubling the number of detectors deployed. It's basically about imaging area. And so if we increase the imaging area by deploying additional detectors, we can move them along more quickly. And that's proven to be quite successful. So Gary, let's talk about the customer side. How do the major mining companies make decisions about which areas to mine and what to go after? Mike, unfortunately, the difficult reality today is that major mining companies are making billion-dollar decisions with less than 1% of 1% of all body knowledge. And so the error bars that mining companies are having to operate with are extraordinary. And that creates a lot of inefficiency in that industry, both economic inefficiency, but environmental inefficiency. And really the role we're playing is providing the industry 95% certainty that when we say a density anomaly exists in a 3D space, it's really there. And with that certainty, there are tremendous optimization opportunities the mining companies have to do things differently from that point forward. We're running this episode in a series of episodes about AI and climate. So let's talk a little bit about the artificial intelligence or machine learning aspects of your business. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, we actually use AI and ML in a number of aspects of the business. And just the, the conversation we're having about deployment and designing the optimal configuration of drill holes and detectors, time, density, contrast. I mean, that's an area we use AI to optimize the survey configuration, the detector array that will deliver the outcome the customer needs in the time frame they need it. So that's like an unsupervised uh, learning approach we're using there. Once we've got data from a deployment, the customer is looking to get an understanding of the geological body that we've identified in the Earth. And so we use something called a structured mesh inversion. And really that's relating the, the raw signal data we get from our detectors and relating that to the geology in the earth. We use that and then typically you see very blocky representations of what that geology could look like. But in nature, they aren't blocky. They are flowing, twisting and turning bodies. And so we use AI in our structured mesh inversions to literally test millions of scenarios to pick the optimal structure that matches the data, the underlying data that we've sensed with our detectors. That's a secondary place where we're using AI. We bring our data often to the customer together with some of their existing data. And then we also use AI and ML for prospectivity. 
I'm sure you know humans aren't always the best at pattern recognition, especially when the volume of data is high. And so pattern recognition is another key technique in really helping the customer understand of all the data we have, here is where we believe the highest prospective area is on your site. And really then, again, about optimizing the next step in their exploration process. So those are a few key examples that, that there are more, but AI is a, a, an important complement to our core technology. And we're not a pure AI company. And really the way we like to express it with our customers, we bring net new data, high resolution, high certainty data to the table. And because of the high resolution, high certainty nature of our neuron tomography data, it actually enables us to make sense of lots of other lower resolution, lower certainty data that the customer may have in their existing data sets. We were speaking to a customer recently who who talked about the value to them of using AI for what they called unsupervised classification. The idea of, you know, if we find one thing and we know what it is, and then we can do a survey that allows us to identify a hundred more things that are somewhat classified the same way without manual intervention, um, we're able to get to a very good answer quickly about what it is we're looking at. Even if they're blobs, they said. Blobs are fine. Yeah. So it's a form of pattern recognition. Totally is. So what's next for Ideon? Where do you imagine yourselves going geographically or industry-wise or scale? How do you, how are you thinking about what's next? Yeah, I think scale is the watchword for this phase of our journey. We've been hustling as a five-person team, as a 10-person team, a 20-person. We're quickly going to be a 50-person team and a 100-person team after that. And so scaling the business is uh, priority number one uh, right now. We are fortunate to be working with uh, some of the leading mining companies in the world. And really the opportunity with those companies is once they get their hands on our technology, understand how it works and what it can do for them, uh, what we find is they quickly have a suite of other projects or sites that they were engaged in. The phase we're in is uh, scaling manufacturing, scaling our software team, scaling geophysics, scaling deployment, scaling business development. Every facet of the business is growing at the moment. And really what we want to be is responsive to the customer's needs and, and, and demands from us. And because working with the largest mining companies, that means we're working on the largest mines in the world, which means we have the opportunity to help the industry turn the dial on supply volume at a lower ESG impact. And therefore, that's where we're orientated. And Kim, you are responsible for both bringing people in to scale your labor force and as well as bringing more customers in to scale the customer pool. What's next on your horizon in these two domains? I love listening to Gary's ambitions. They're uh, inspirational. And I think one of the challenges we're going to face as we do scale is preserving that core culture. And, you know, you read a lot about that, about how companies have great ambitions and they're founded and everything good and things start to crack at a particular time. So being extra conscious of that and making sure that we're nurturing this culture that is an attractor in the first place, not only for our employees, but our customers, too, in many cases, that'll be a real focus for us. And definitely looking forward to the opportunity to diversify responsibility on the business development side of things. I think there's a lot of opportunity out there uh, and only enough time in the day to kind of scratch the surface. So let's go to the final question that I uh, that I love asking, which is for those of our listeners who are thinking about going into business and climate change in some manner or another, what advice do you have for them? Resources? Where should they be looking? Kim, can we start with you? Sure. Maybe I'll just start with my portfolio as a non-scientist. 
includes everything from talent, marketing, communications, investor relations, government funding, BD, I would say generalize. Um, there's huge value in being able to work across different portfolios and see the connectivity points between them. And that connectivity across all those functions is often what makes a company distinct, right? You can have all kinds of siloed operations and think that you're doing a great job, but the end result is very flat. <laughs> so don't specialize so much in what it is that you're doing. And so to that end, resource-wise, read everything. Read The Economist. Get on some of the newsletters that the VCs distribute from a tech perspective, the inside information. Some of those newsletters I find fascinating and extremely timely, especially given events with banking. So digest all the information coming at you. Be selective with it, obviously, but I wouldn't eliminate anything. It's interesting to see the trends. Great. Are there specific examples of those VC newsletters that you wanted to share? There are. I actually get strictly VC um, that I look at on a regular basis and more sort of locally in our area. Some of the tech journals in British Columbia and the Vancouver area are quite useful, like Vancouver Tech Journal and TechCouver, those types of things. Great. Thanks. And we'll put links to those in the show notes. Maybe more advice than a resource. My advice to people considering uh, a career in climate or climate tech, be courageous. The world needs major industrial powerhouses, likes of BHP, Glencore, Valley, the types of customers we're working with. We need those companies to be courageous. And for them to be courageous, they need talent that is courageous. And if I take uh, Kim and my personal experience, it took some courage to leave the comfort of our corporate roles. But the reward for being prepared to take a risk, be courageous to put yourself out there, is remarkable. The imposter syndrome, I think, is something that is more widespread than most of us would care to accept. And I would say that imposter is holding you back from your true potential. The fear is always greater than the reality. Push through the fear, be courageous, and go after the career that you want. And a career today in STEM can be something quite different than a career in STEM even 10 years ago. I think the world is full of amazing opportunities, but it will be the brave and courageous who grab them, who end up redefining uh, major industries in our world and the contribution they make to it. Thank you so much for spending time with us on Climate Rising and for sharing your story of Ideon Technologies and where you've come from and where you're heading. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Mike. Thanks, Mike. That was my conversation with Gary Agnew, CEO and co-founder of Ideon Technologies, and Kim Lawrence, VP of Talent and Customer Experience. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, share with your friends, and don't forget to rate and review. For show notes, head over to climaterising.org or click on the link in the podcast information. You've been listening to Climate Rising. I'm your host, Mike Toffel. Kate Zarenner is our producer, and Craig McDonald is our audio engineer. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Climate Rising. See you then.